And a nice big hand for Wilmer Flores as he comes to bat. Most of these fans know that Wilmer's about to get traded. Social media being such, these days, everybody knows what the situation is. It's a little odd that Wilmer's still in the game, but the fans will give him a little send-off here. Remember that guy? The show where we minor memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players, past and present. At least until Michael Ayers trades me for some high A-ball pitching prospects, I am still one of your hosts, James. Thankfully still a part of this incredible team. Diaz back with you once again, and we did get a deadline deal in, folks. We were supposed to have a different special guest, but right at the wire, we were able to send out and get a nice return. We got a co-host to be named later, but for now, we're going to have to make do with the return we did get. Please introduce yourself. That's right. It's me. You know, the, the, the gem of the trade deadline, the very special guest, Xavier. Let's go ahead and and not mince words. The person that we didn't get was Eric Hosmer. We were also on the list of no trade destinations for Eric Hosmer. So I don't want that to be some secret that comes out later. We can just be honest about it. But now he gets to enjoy uh, Boston until Luke Voigt murders him in cold blood for uh, being taken off a World Series contending team and being sent to D.C. just because of Hosmer. So we'll see how long Hosmer stays alive when... uh, He's confronted with a 260-pound, as Rigo calls him, giant slug of a man. I just had to look real quick. The Nats do not play the Red Sox at any point this season. Luke Voigt being traded, also a real shame, because, man, with the partially unbuttoned uh, San Diego jerseys, Luke Voigt was fucking hot. (laughs) It is a severe tragedy for the hotness of the league, but Luke Voigt will continue to be hot elsewhere. I think we will survive. We'll make it through somehow. Uh, Speaking of things that are hot, let's go ahead and talk about the things that are hot in our minds right now as I check in with you guys to see who is making memories for you right now. Well, so I was actually, I mean, let's let's, let's just keep talking about Eric Hosmer because I think that is incredible. So, and again, to to pull back the curtain a little bit to, to let the viewers into our production text, what I immediately texted to, to James and Xavier was that Eric Hosmer is Matt Geiger. Major trade is about to go down to completely shake up Major League Baseball. But Eric Hosmer, just as Matt Geiger did for the hypothetical 2000 Allen Iverson trade, put his foot down and said no. And he got a lot of shit for that. To me, this is not shit that he deserved. There is some shit in the world that deserves to be dispersed and given to others for them to receive it and to give shit to them. But Eric Hosmer did not deserve that shit. He bargained in his contract for the right to be able to say that I don't want to go to shitty places such as the Nationals franchise as it currently exists. For some reason, fans, and it comes back to fans always, for some reason, have issues with players exercising their rights, which just blows my mind because the the argument you always hear is, well, if you pay me that much money, well, okay, well, listen, fat ass on your fucking couch. (laughs) If you want to dedicate your entire life to honing your body and honing your craft to be in the 0.001% of people that do this thing, then you can get millions of dollars and then you can speak on what you would do if you were Eric Hosmer. I have no issues with what Eric Hosmer did. You know, Boston is a shitty place in and of its own, but at least it's a shitty place that he is choosing to go to. And I'm glad that he got that choice because he bargained for his right to be able to do so. 
I'll never tell anyone to not use their no trade clause because I very much appreciated when Adam Jones used his during one of the last even remotely watchable Orioles seasons until this year because it meant that I got to say goodbye to Adam Jones on what seemed to be more or less his terms. Does suck that since then, the organization seemed to always take that very seriously. For instance, I can't imagine Eric Hosmer is ever going to be invited back for any kind of Padres thing, just as Adam Jones, the person who played the most games in Camden Yards, is not involved in like any of the 30th anniversary of Camden Yards stuff this year. Which is another reason to not be particularly pleased with the Orioles front office right now. What? I mean, James, that sounds like a segue right there. Are there things that are upsetting you and making unfortunate memories for you in that front office? I mean, there are, but like I almost don't. I, I mentioned Trey Mancini. The day that the episode where I talked about Trey Mancini and Mo Gabba, the day that came out, he got traded. It's heartbreaking. Um, I don't want to talk too much about that or Jorge Lopez going. Everyone's like, yeah, it's a good value deal. Yeah, sure. But it just goes back to the same thing I felt about this team for the last couple of years, which is it would be nice to enjoy watching my team for six months, regardless of their overall success. That wasn't initially what I intended bringing up, but I will go ahead and acknowledge what I wanted to bring up. And it's, it's tough for me to say this. My defeat at the hands of our very special guest savior in our inaugural season of the Clockwork Orange Hoodie League celebrating the WNBA. The, the Tulsa Shockers had a phenomenal season. I'm not here to complain. We led the league 400 points over the next season total. And yet, in the 11 weeks that we were in contention, we faced Xavier in four of those. We did not surpass Xavier's total in a single one of those four weeks. And, uh, man, just, it gets you. I've never expected to win a fantasy league in my life, but was not a way I expected to lose. But I, I wish you the best against the hated Don Jabis. No, I, I appreciate that, James. And that actually segues perfectly into uh, something I want to talk about. Sabrina Ionescu needs help. Joe Sai, go out there and give Brianna Stewart all of the money in the offseason because Ionescu is way too good to be on an 11 and 18 team. She is the only reason why I am anywhere I am in the fantasy league, but that is the only silverware she might win this year. I actually looked into it. So she is the only person on the New York Liberty who has a win share total over 1.6. Chicago Sky have seven players like that. It is a one woman army, the New York Liberty right now. And they have the richest owner. This should not be the case. Go get Brianna Stewart. They can turn it around and win the title next year. Stewart is a free agent. I know she is, but like we got to step in for a second and say, you really think Seattle's going to let Brianna Stewart walk the year after Sue She's Storm a New York retires? native. She's a New York native. She. I I would be gobsmacked, and I'll be the first to admit if I'm wrong. Here, I will uh, once again come on bended knee before you as I do today to to offer my my congratulations on you being either right or victorious. But I will be astounded if the Seattle Storm let Brianna Stewart walk the year after Sue Bird retires. They are going to go for the hard push. It, it might not work, but they're going to try really, really hard to get her. So, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. The only other thing I wanted to bring up real quick was uh talked about the World Baseball Classic a little while back. You know, excited for it to come back. Marcus Stroman, who was the MVP of the 2017 World Baseball Classic and the starting pitcher in the uh, 
previously mentioned 8-0 USA drubbing of Puerto Rico in the final, has switched allegiances and will be pitching for Puerto Rico in the World Baseball Classic next year. This might be the first documented case of a pitcher beating a team in a final and then playing for that nation in the next final. Marcus Stroman is as anti-Kevin Durant as has ever been in professional sports. This man conquered and won a championship and said, you know what I need to prove now? That USA didn't win the World Baseball Classic. I need to prove that Marcus fucking Stroman won the World Baseball Classic. <laughs> I'm going back to the other side. I'm going back to my roots. And I'm going to pitch for Puerto Rico. And obviously, as an unbiased Puerto Rican, I could not support <laughs> this more. I love it. Me encanta, Marcus. Mi amor. I love you. Thank you for returning to the patria and fixing the wrongs that you did commit five years ago. <laughs> this is a fully unbiased as Southern Unido. No, this is great. This is how sports can... Sports used to lead the way with civil rights, and that's really fallen back. You know, one of the big pushes I think we need to do now, the returning of indigenous talent from the imperialist stronghold of America to the colonies from which that talent was sapped. Like, this is how we get sports back into the political conversation. So I could not be more supportive of it either. Vamos, Marcus Stroman. Best of luck to Puerto Rico. I do still have to root for the United States. You, you saying that just reminded me of the uh, 2018 World Cup where France won, but like 90% of their roster were immigrants from Africa uh, who the French notoriously are very racist against. And all of the memes that came out, Africa wins the World Cup. And just thinking, wow, what if all of those players had played for, think about how great African football would be. Exactly. And that's where it like, so the great tragedy of that is a lot of the premier talents, not just in soccer, but like, so I also think basketball, for example, Joel Embiid is not playing for Cameroon. He has declared that he will play for France in the next Olympics. And a lot of that is due to the corruption of these organizations, the sporting bodies on, on their highest level. So ultimately, it, I mean, it all comes back down to power, right? And that is the greatest shame that these assholes are going to just be corrupt and they're going to take the money and they're not going to let us see people represent where realistically they would probably prefer to. Like, I've never once heard Joel Embiid talk about his French heritage. Talks proudly about being African, talks proudly about being Cameroonian, but he's going to play for France because he doesn't want to get ripped off. Tragic. Certainly, who are we to say what an athlete is going to do to put themselves in the best position to win at all times? But again, all the more reason to be very supportive of Marcus Stroman and hope that maybe things are a little bit different this time. Because as you said, he's got to prove that Marcus Stroman won the last World Baseball Classic. But instead of looking forward to the next World Baseball Classic, let's look back on some guys. And Xavier, after your successful push for Mr. Lazarus Lake last week, I would love to hear a little bit more about the guys that we decided to delve into for this segment. Thanks, James. So the category that I brought today is workhorses. Guys who may not have been the best, but they were always ready to go out there and compete and compete and compete whenever needed. And I want to give a special shout out to my dad for the guy that I'm bringing today. 
I was home in New York this past weekend. I watched the Yankee game with my dad. This was the first baseball game that he has watched in well over a year. So he had no idea who the people in the Yankees were. So I was trying to explain them to him. And while trying to explain Nestor Cortez and his uh, funky delivery where he changes arm angles, my dad, being an older baseball fan, brought up one specific guy that immediately came to mind. A pioneer of the submarine delivery. Today I want to talk about the rubber band man, Kent Ticulli. The rubber band man. The rubber band man. He, He had two nicknames, Teak and the rubber band man. Rubber band man, I will explain a little further into it, but... Is very well known by, by that nickname and was on baseball cards and stuff like that. Kent Ticulli was born March 5th, 1947 in Cincinnati, Ohio. He grew up in the suburbs, uh, went to Hamilton Catholic High School. At uh, Hamilton Catholic, he was a designated pitcher. So unlike you know most high school pitchers, Ticulli did not play any other positions. So he sat out every single game where he was not pitching. It's not like, oh, he was the left fielder and hit sixth on days he wasn't pitching. He said he just sat out. And when he was pitching, they put him all the way at ninth in the lineup because they did not want him to do anything else. As you might expect, with his very limited skill set, he did not get uh, a lot of college attention. So he ended up at a local Marietta College, a D3 school. Real quick, was this because, like, he was just a super fragile and sickly kid? Or were they trying to specialize? Was it, what's the rationale behind him just never doing anything? Kent Tocolvi was never very athletic. Okay. So, at Marietta, Tocolvi worked on trying to refine his pitching. And in his senior season, he pitched to a .94 ERA and was second team All-Ohio Athletic Conference. So he is a second-team D3 pitcher. Does not get drafted. But Marietta College is only three hours away from Pittsburgh. And so he gets invited to a tryout with the Pirates at Forbes Field. After a warm-up, Nicole gets asked not to pitch and just sits around in the stands for a while. He later learned that some coaches thought he looked funny when he tried to run. So they didn't even want him to, to, to try out. They're like... Who is this guy? He looks like a loser. Just go away. I'm willing to give his high school coaches a little more credit now for making that decision if professional scouts are looking at you like, hey, you shouldn't be doing sports. And to Colby, he has said that I'm not a runner. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pitcher. And that if I could run, I'd be stealing bases. That, that's, not what I, that's not what I was there for. So I, I don't know why they were really judging me so harshly on that. But after a couple hours... Most of the other players have, have left or been seen at this point. So they do let Tocolvi throw some pitches, and he gets signed immediately by uh, scout Dick Corey. Always love a good Dick. Days later, he, he, he's uh, pitching for the Geneva Pirates of the New York Penn League. So he's into things real quick. One year later, they switch him to relief when he's in the Carolina League, and uh, the future Pirates general manager tried to get him to abandon his sidearm delivery Colby said, no, no way. I'm, I, I, this, is what I, this is what I do. Not changing it. I mean, that's like, that's like going to like the circus and saying, hey, clowns, I don't know why you're riding unicycles. Have you considered riding on two wheels? You're disregarding what his entire thing is. Yeah, and that's what Tocolvi thought too. So, you know, he, this guy, uh, is, his name was Harding Peterson, who he was the minor league director of the Pirates at the time, later the general manager 
he, he told them, you know, this is what I do. I'm not changing it. And so he didn't. He spends the next couple seasons trying to refine his delivery and finally makes his big league debut on May 20th, 1974 at the age of 27. He pitches a scoreless inning against the Expos. His first win comes a week later when he blows a save in the top of the ninth by giving a home run to John Grubb of the Padres, but then gets the win when Richie Hebner hit a walk-off homer in the bottom of the inning. A few weeks later, gets sent down to the minors where he stays until June of 1995. Finally gets recalled, now 28, appears in 34 games. He pitches to a 2-2-5 ERA and earns a spot on the postseason roster where he gets to pitch in two games in a losing effort in the NLCS against the Reds. 1976, he starts taking on a bigger role. He appears in 64 games and has a 2.45 ERA over 102.2 innings. Then in 77, he appears in 72 games as a 10-1 record uh, as the setup man under Goose Gossage and ends uh, ends up with seven saves. In 78, Gossage leaves to go to the Yankees. Misses to Colby's breakout season. He appears in 91 games, leading the league, and putting up a 2-3-3 ERA over 135 innings. Also picks up eight wins and 31 saves, finishes fifth in NL Cy Young voting, and even got some down-ballot MVP votes. Plus, he's doing it all in some of my favorite uniforms in baseball history, which are those, like, I have so many pictures to send Plus, they've got the pillbox hats... God, they're like the 70s pirates have phenomenal fashion sense. It's really good. His, his baseball cards are fantastic. In 1979, Tacovi again leads the league in games pitched. He pitches in 94 games this year. He ends up with 134.1 in- innings pitched, 10 wins, 31 saves, including one on the pivotal last day of the season to clinch the NLE's title over the Expos. He again finishes fifth in Cy Young voting, this time getting a first-place vote and eighth in the MVP voting, also getting a first-place vote for MVP. With his 6'4", 180-pound frame, long arms, and ability to pitch whenever, Tocolvi officially becomes known as the Rubber Band Man. He was one of the first relievers to have his own entrance music. The song, as you could possibly guess, Rubber Band Man by the Detroit Spinners. Certainly not losing control. He is the rubber in. band man was in control that year. In the postseason, Colby pitches n- nine innings and saves three games in the World Series, tying a record that was stand until 1996, including saves in games six and seven. As the Pirates come back from a three-one series deficit against the team that shall not be named to spare uh, the feelings uh, the of one Orioles. of the hosts. No, it's the Orioles. It's one of two times that the Pittsburgh Pirates beat the Orioles in the World Series in the 1970s. Moving on. <laughs> in 1980, uh, Tocolvi gets named to the All-Star team for the first and only time at the age of 33, despite you know a relatively down season compared to 78 and 79. He spends four more years with the Pirates. He leads the league in games again in 1982 with 85, before he gets traded to the Phillies, where he became the setup man for Steve Bedrosian. 1986, first full year with the Phillies. Nicolby goes 11-5 with a 2.54 ERA across 73 games and 110 innings, despite being 39 years old at this point. And in 1987, at the age of 40, 
Jacoby leads the league in games pitched for the fourth time with 90. Oldest pitcher to ever lead the league in games played, and the only pitcher over 40 to even break 80 games played in a single season. A 40-year-old appearing in more than half of a team's games as a pitcher is pretty insane. You know what else is insane? During this season, he also sets a record that still stands when he pitched on nine consecutive days, giving up one run over 9.1 innings. The Phillies trotted out a 40-year-old nine days in a row. Golly! Now, when we talk about unbreakable records, like people like to go to, you know, Cal Ripken, obviously. Maggio's hitting streak, Wilt's 100-point game. Nine consecutive appearances for a pitcher, I don't think will ever even be approximated, as long as current baseball logic holds. The absolute most consecutive days that any manager would play a pitcher today is, what, three, probably? I, I can't picture more than three, yeah. It's three, three maybe four absolute. in the postseason. Like, that's that's probably it. But. Well, what did... I guess there probably wasn't nine consecutive days because I was going to say it would never be four consecutive days in, in postseason. It, it was nine consecutive days, not just games. Nine consecutive oh days. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's elder abuse. <laughs> I mean, Xavier, Xavier would be the, the one to speak on that. I mean, I don't know how, how recently you brushed up on elder law, but. No, I, I think Tacovi had the capacity to, uh, to choose to do that or not. 40 is old for baseball terms. Not old for life terms, or legal terms, I should say. He, he plays one more season with the Phillies after that, and then spends a half year with his hometown. Pete Rose managed Reds as the setup man for John Franco before retiring in July of 1989. For 16 seasons, Tocolvi appeared in 1,050 games all out of the bullpen, going 94-90 with 184 saves and a career ERA of 2.85. His advanced analytics are, are, are good too. Like I think his ERA plus was like 134. So he wasn't just a product of 70s, 80s counting stats. He was actually like, he, even today, looked, looked upon pretty well by, by analytics. He also likes analytics. He thinks he's one of the only Ooh. elderly pitchers who isn't a dick about it, where he thinks analytics are just fine. When he retired, his 1,050 games was second all-time. He is currently still ninth all-time in games pitched between Mike Timlin and Latroy Hawkins. And he still has the record for most innings ever pitched as a reliever in the National League uh, with 1,436. So that's fewer than one inning per game? You said 1,050 games. 1,050 games. 1,436 oh, I innings. missed that 400. Oop, I missed that 400 big time. Yes. I just heard the 36. Yeah, yeah so, right. so, so, so close on. to an inning and a half per game. In the list for most games pitched in a single season, Tocobi has three of the top ten and is one of only five pitchers to appear 90 games or more in a single season, and he did that three times. Only Mike Marshall has ever pitched more games in a season than uh, Tocobi. He has the Phillies record for most games pitched in a single season with that 90 in his age 40 season. Is tied for the Pirates record with 94. Also has the most intentional walks ever with 179. Oddly it, enough, Greg, Greg Maddox is second with 177. So they, they had him intentionally walk people a lot. He knew how to pick his battles, you know? <laughs> I have a couple of fun facts about Kent Ticolvi I, I wanted to bring up. So he was in a 1983 episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood to explain how to play baseball. I bought the episode from Amazon for a dollar because I had to see it. I was so 
when I found this out, I was like, okay, what, what actually happens here? It was an episode about robots. And a robot that looked a lot like a knockoff R2-D2 was talking with Daniel Striked Tiger and saying that it could explain all games. So when Daniel Striked Tiger asked what it meant, the robot said to say the name of a game, to which Tiger said baseball. The camera like goes closer to the robot and pans into Hector Colby standing at home plate of just a, a small baseball field holding a bat and a ball. Where he just explains the basic rules of baseball for 20 seconds. It, it was the most brief explanation. Did not even mention pitching, despite the fact that he's a pitcher. And then it cuts to Daniel Stripe Tiger asking the robot to explain football, which they bring in Lynn Swan to do that. Okay, perfect. This has proved my theory, which is that, so Mr. Rogers was from Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh. so I was yeah. trying to think, like, why, I guess this is just the only pirate they could get, but then they get Lynn Swan from the Steelers? <laughs> I mean, here's how that production meeting probably went, right? They're like, all right, who do we want to get? Willie Stargell? Ah, nah, Willie's too expensive. Roberto Clemente? Ah, fuck, he died like 10 years ago. Uh, what about that, uh, that fucking guy that throws the pitches all crazy? Do you think we can get him? Kenta Colby. Okay, yeah, let's get him. <laughs> Thank you for your insight. That's that's me. If, if we zoomed into my eyeballs and then we came out at the production meeting, that's how I envisioned it went. I, I do like that uh, that behind the scenes analysis. I, I hope that's exactly what happens. To Colby also had a, a distinguished post playing career. He was a member of the Phillies TV broadcast team from 1991 to 1997. In 2001. He became the director of baseball op for the brand new Washington Wild Things of the Independent League over in Washington, Pennsylvania, which still exists to this day. And he later joined the Pirates broadcasting and worked as an analyst from 2008 to 2017. He also threw out the ceremonial first pitch of the NL wildcard game against the Giants uh, in 2014, less than a month after having a heart transplant. Kendra Colby kind of rules. You know, the, 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 just the last thing I want to talk about was and he, he, he's still around. He actually was interviewed by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette last week. This is where he talked about how he's fine with analytics. And, and thinks the people who are kind of the crotchy old men, like it was better in our day, are dumbasses. He was, asked, he was asked specifically about why he developed the sidearm style. And his response was, quote, I wasn't exactly atop the gene pool. That was pretty much me doing what I felt gave me the best opportunity to be successful. Kent Ticoldi, not an athlete. A heck of a he's, workhorse. He's, he's working with what he's got. He's picking his battles. Very cool that he had this, I guess, one experience with Fred Rogers that just told him, you know what, I need to be in front of a camera from this point forward. Once he got a taste of the limelight, Kent to Colby could not let go. I'm also sending you both pictures of Kent to Colby right now so you can see why he is the rubber band man. Because it is fantastic, and those Pittsburgh Pirates hats are just so good. The pillbox hats are excellent. The pillbox hats with the stars, it's fantastic. Well, I mean, hey, we talked Phillies there for a moment. Do we want to go ahead and slide on over to Philadelphia and, and see what Justin Diaz has brought in the category of workhorses this week? I would love to dive in. And unfortunately, try as I may, I was not able to find a Philadelphian that was able to, to fit this category. But I was able to find somebody who speaks to my soul. 
I haven't talked at length about my pickup basketball tendencies and playing on this podcast, but to give a brief snapshot, I'm not the best athlete at this point. I'm not particularly tall. I'm only 5'11". So the great equalizer for people like me who aren't that fast and aren't that tall and aren't able to jump that high is the three-point shot. An incredible invention. An absolutely incredible invention. And to start off, and don't overthink this, either of you. I just, whoever comes to mind, when you think of the godfather, the, the, the first person to capitalize on the three-point shot, who, what's the first name that comes to mind for both of you? Probably Larry Bird. Larry Bird is a good answer. Xavier? This is very specific to me in having done this podcast, but Trent Tucker. Trent Tucker is a good one you could go with. You could also stay with the New York Knicks franchise. John Starks is one of the first great three-point marksmen in the NBA. But we're not talking about the NBA when we're talking about the godfather of the three-point shot. We're talking about a much more cool and fun and hip basketball league. We're talking about the ABA. We're talking about the American Basketball Association, which was the first major league to institute the three-point line. And we're talking about the all-time ABA leader in three-pointers attempted with 2,217, three-pointers made with 794, points with 13,726, assists with 4,044, minutes played with 27,770, and games played with 728. I'm talking about the greatest player in the history of the American Basketball Association. No, I said, I don't have a Philadelphian, so I'm not talking about Julius Irving. I am talking about the pride of Indianapolis, Indiana, and the pride of the Kentucky Colonels, Louis Dampier. Okay, yeah, I think that is probably the only person you could say during the duration of the ABA had a better career than Julius Irving. Well, so first off, just to, to start with the, the ABA thing, he, Louis Dampier is one of only two players to have played in all nine seasons of the ABA's existence. The other being Byron Beck, who played for the Denver, then Rockets, they become Denver Nuggets. We're not here to talk about no Beck. We're here to talk about sweet Lou, little Louis Dampier. Louis was born November 20th, 1944, in Indianapolis, Indiana. Indiana, of course, the lo location for Hoosiers, one of the greatest basketball movies ever made, about the legendary high school basketball scene in Indiana. And Louis made his mark early in playing a high school ball at Indiana. So in his high school career, he was two-time All-State. He was named in his senior year to play in the great Indiana versus Kentucky high school basketball game. That's literally just what they called it, the Indiana Kentucky <laughs> high school basketball game. Unsullied by corporate sponsorship. The, the Indiana It's like a Cincinnati's Great American Ballpark. Right, exactly. Listen, we don't need to get into any more than just saying what it is, which is that it is a Great American Ballpark. It is the Indiana Kentucky high school basketball game. His senior year, he averaged 24 points a game playing for Southport. He won county and sectionals, and in that run, he set the sectional scoring record uh, when he scored 40 to clinch sectionals for Southport. 
Now, when he played in that famed high school game, he got a little taste of Kentucky. He decided, that was finger looking good. I'm going to stay in Kentucky. I'm going to go play for unfortunately named Adolph Rupp. And I'm going to play for the Kentucky Wildcats. At Kentucky, he has an incredible career. He's a two-time All-American. He's three-time All-SEC. Finishes with 1,575 points for his career, which at the time of his graduation was third most in Kentucky basketball history. He also made it to the NCAA championship in 1966. And anybody that's ever seen the movie Glory Road knows exactly where I'm going with this. He played against Texas Western, the famed Texas Western team, which broke the color barrier and became the first all-black starting lineup to win the NCAA championship. There's winners and there's losers in that movie. The losers are Kentucky and Adolph Rupp and also Louis Dampier. So <laughs> makes it to the championship his junior year, doesn't manage to win it. 1967, another good season. They don't make it to the championship, and he graduates. And now he has some prospects as he's able to go. So not only you have the established National Basketball Association, and in this, he's drafted by the Cincinnati Royals, and this sets up a great opportunity. So as I alluded, the three-point shot is this great equalizer for smaller players. Louis is a smaller player. Uh, so at six foot, he has the opportunity to go to the Cincinnati Royals to play with the big O, Oscar Robertson, and to form this lethal backcourt. There's one issue. The Cincinnati Royals did not offer contracts outright to their rookie draft picks. They said, you need to come in for a tryout. We need to get a look at you before we're going to sign you to a contract. So Louis Dampier, again, a two-time All-American, a three-time All-SEC, one of the greatest scorers in the history of Kentucky basketball, which today it's a story program. It was a story program back then, too. They said, we haven't seen enough. We banned the Sacramento Kings organization. And you guys looked at me a little cockeyed for that. First. You're like, what are you doing? I'm like, no, I think we need to recognize that there is no more unserious organization in the history of North American professional sports than what is now the Sacramento Kings. Because this is also coming out the week when RIP only likable Celtic Bill Russell passed away and it came out that basically the Royals were talked out of drafting him because they were promised an appearance by ice capades in their city. Just a franchise that does not care about being good at basketball. Kings Reddit also had a fantastic post that was shared by one Justin Diaz about a Kings fan saying it's sad that Bill Russell died but he was a terrible coach for the Sacramento Kings. Xavier, I need to just pull up the exact language of that because it was the way it was phrased. It was the hardest I've laughed at something that I just read on the internet in quite some time. So I'll, I'll do my best to do it justice. No disrespect to the deceased, but Bill Russell was an absolute disaster of a coach for us. Absolute disaster takes me out. So fucking good. It's a horrible thing to say. It's an inaccurate thing to say. It's a bullshit thing to say. To say about Bill Russell, absolute disaster. It's just, it's one of those, like, it's it's so the opposite of truth that it becomes incredibly funny. I love that. But yes, the Kings banned, the Rochester Royals banned, the Cincinnati Royals banned, all forms of that dog shit franchise are banned. For now, the additional reason of the fact that they were not willing to give a contract outright to little Louis Dampier. 
the ABA was a fledgling league and they were doing things different. Obviously, you know, this is their inaugural season, so they didn't have a draft. They just basically said, hey, go find the guys that you want. They had the opportunity to stay home to play for the local Kentucky Colonels, and he said, why not? And, I mean, that's exactly what Lou says. He says, I was drafted by the Cincinnati Royals. They had tryouts. Even their number one pick had to come in and try out, and they didn't offer a contract without seeing the player. The Colonels and the ABA were offering contracts without any of that going on. That's why I signed with the Colonels. Now, we're at the genesis of the league. We're at the genesis of Louis Dampier in the ABA. So it's important to take a brief step back and, as we alluded at the start, the three-point line. The three-point line was not first introduced in the ABA. There were one-off college games that experimented it with different rules. It never stuck long-term. It was always just these one-off kind of trial games. Let's see how we like it. There was even a game where they tried where you had to shoot from behind the three-point line. There was no twos. You could only shoot threes. People weren't really sure what they were doing with this rule at first. It had been trialed in a couple professional leagues, so most prominently the American Basketball League, seven, eight years before the ABA was founded, tried to institute the three-point line. That league never stuck and never really made it. But what I love about the introduction of the three-point line into the ABA is that the main advocate for it was a man that would have never even dreamed of going behind the three-point line in his NBA career. One of the first dominant big men, George Mikan, was the original ABA commissioner. And this was his idea. George Mikan wanted to introduce three-point line because he had two theories that I think really, really hold up today when you look at the way basketball is played. He said... If we introduce the three-point line, two things are going to happen. Three things, actually. First of all, the defenses are going to be stretched out. We see this effect so much with the gravity of great shooters in the basketball today. He said little guys are going to have a chance to be just as effective as the big guys. Back then, it's all post-play. It's dominant down on the block. Get the big man, get him closer to the rim, let him score. This helps to level that playing field. And also the fans are going to love it. Chicks dig the long ball. Dudes dig the long ball. Non-binary fans of sport dig the long ball. Everybody digs the long ball, of course. That was Mikan's sort of hypothesis. But obviously, to start off, what's this new crazy thing that people are talking about? There's a three-point line. People don't really take to it initially. And Louis Dampier, even though Kentucky teammates would joke years later... You know, we didn't have the three-point line in college, but I think Lou never took a shot inside of what it would have been anyway. Lou loved the long ball before there was any added benefit to it other than, hey, maybe people won't guard me as much out here. So he, even being a natural to this kind of thing, only takes two threes per game in his first year. Makes about 27% of them. Three-point shooting isn't really... It's a new thing. People aren't quite sure how to feel about it. But going into the second year... His coach said to him and to his backcourt mate, Daryl Carrier, he said, I just want you guys to launch. You need to both average 25 points a game this year. Now, they didn't quite get to that mark. Carrier led the league in three-point percentage that season, but on significantly less volume than Louis Dampier. So in the second season, let's go through some statistics to put things in context for you. 
Ampere in the 1968-69 nice ABA season made 199 three-pointers. Only two players in the league to even eclipse 100 besides him was his teammate, Carrier, had 125, and Chico Vaughn had 145 threes made. Those are the only other guys to even exceed 100. In professional basketball, the 199 threes that Dampier made in the 68-69 season would not be eclipsed until 1995 when, with his 217 three-pointers on a shortened three-point line, John Starks broke that record. I am shocked that made it to the mid-90s. Well, it's, I mean, you, you see how ahead of his time he was because of yeah. that. Because again, even when the three-point shot was introduced, people were still, still stuck in their anachronistic ways. This is the way we've always done it. Get it to the big guys, stay down low. I don't need these long shots. So it took quite some time for, for people to catch on with this. But as much as that puts it in the context, the next statistic puts it into even greater context, just how absurd this was. Now, granted, we need to account for the fact that the ABA had less teams than are in the NBA today. But for the 68-69 season, there were 1,515 three-pointers that were made in the ABA. Ampere made 199 of those. For the entire season, 13.1% of threes that were made in the ABA were made by Louis Dampier. Steph Curry's record-setting season in 2015-16, he hit 402 three-pointers. This accounts for less than 2% of the NBA's total in that season. There were only two teams in all of the ABA that year to make more threes than Louis Dampier did. The Minnesota Pipers made 281. They had Chico Vaughn, so that's about half of those. And the Los Angeles Stars made 218. This is like when when fucking Babe Ruth starts hitting homers, because I remember a very similar statistic, like one of his first seasons early on with the Yankees. There's one other team besides the Yankees that he's on that even hits as many home runs as him. Like, this is someone discovering a new aspect of the game. (laughs) Right. And I, I mean, again, to get back to it, it's not like Lou said, okay, I see the three point line. I'm going to add this to my arsenal. He was already shooting it from deep before they had a three-point line. This just further encouraged him. To hear him talk about it, he said, my average jumper probably came from about 20, 21 feet when I was in college. The the ABA line was about 23 feet, so he had to take a, a little bit of a step back. But like more or less, he's just playing his game, and now he gets 50% more points for, for most of his shots. So just the absolute pioneer of the three-point shot as you can tell from that point right away. But the team success doesn't quite come at this point. Yeah, he's, he's just a little guy out here. They don't really have big men. So they, uh, they, they, they don't go to a championship, anything like that. He, he does. I'm now going to talk just large scale about his ABA career because that 68-69 season, nice, is really the pinnacle of his incredible volume from three. He would, the next season, still shoot 6.7 threes per game as opposed to the 7.1 per game that he launched in the 68-69 season. Shoots the exact same percentage, 36.1%. Then, going forward, they were able to add some big men. So, for example, the the best one would be uh, Artis Gilmore, who would go on to have a great NBA career at 7-2. 
one other record that he did set before I, I jump too far ahead. In the 70-71 season, so he's not just a great shooter from distance, also a very good free throw shooter. He made 57 straight free throws during the 70-71 season, uh, which would stand as a professional record for quite some time. The only person I could think of that's eclipsed that since then uh, would be Elena Deladon, who made about 140 consecutive free throws in high school playing for Ursuline in Wilmington. Um, so with the exception of Elena Deladon, perhaps the greatest free throw shooter of all time, Louis Dampier, he was an 82% free throw shooter for his career. But did have that incredible streak to go on. They would, finally, in the 1974-75 season, claim their only championship during the ABA with the Kentucky Colonels. In that season, Louis shot the second fewest threes that he did in his career. But what we see is, I mean, it's, it's the same thing that we kind of see in the NBA today. As volume goes up, efficiency may go down. But as volume goes down, efficiency goes up. Louis would talk saying, I got so many more open shots because of the big men. Dump it down to the big men. Gravity, defense collapses, kick it back out to the open shooter. In that championship season, he made a career high 39.6% of his threes. Only on 1.2 per game, but also that much more efficient. We play one more season in the ABA for the Colonels, shoot 36.8% from three, and uh, thus would end his ABA career. Not because of his talent or anything like that, but simply because the league was bought by the NBA. But his playing career does not end here. And here's my little pitch to you, James. He goes to the NBA and joins the San Antonio Spurs. He finishes. <laughs> I had a feeling career. he probably went to one of the other ABA teams. Yeah. So he does uh, join up with George Gervin there. He's mainly playing behind George. Not able to to succeed at the same level as he did with the ABA again because NBA would not adopt the three point line until. The year after he retired, which is the, the great tragedy here. He would play three seasons for the Spurs, retiring in the 78-79 season. But despite that, obviously still managed to, to leave quite a legacy on the history of basketball. There is a modern ABA, which functions as a semi-pro league. Divisions are named after some legends of the ABA. And there is the Dampier division. They've since changed their naming patterns. I believe they're much more regional now. But at the new ABA's founding, at the Dampier division. Was at least important enough that if they were going to be named after anyone, they were going to be named after Louis Dampier, damn it. (laughs) Dampier, damn it. They're going to name it after him. He was also inducted into the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in September of 2015. What I love about this is like, especially, I mean, for me as a basketball head, I feel like I know all the great names in the history of the game, but I never knew about Louis Dampier until I thought when Xavier pitched the category was, oh, I wonder who played like the most minutes in NBA history. And then you look at the list and it's like, okay, yeah, Kareem (laughs) Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Russell. Oh yeah, the all-time leading scorer played the most minutes. Like, all these great players. Uh, but then, I was, well, let's try a different angle. Let's look at the ABA. Because I, I assume Dr. J would have been topping most of those lists. But, no, here I see this name that I've never seen before. Louis Dampier. Got to see a picture of what he looked like when he was playing. I mean, it is just a pinnacle of the 70s. 
you know, the, the side swipe hair. He's got like a nice thick porn mustache. Really just a man of his time and of that period. One thing that he credits a lot of his success to in his time in the ABA was actually the red, white, and blue ball. Because he said, you know, with the standard basketball, you can't really see the spin of how it's coming off your hand. But with that red, white, and blue ball, very obvious. He said, uh, you see on its way to the basket what kind of spin you had on it. And I always tried to make sure I had that perfect backspin coming right back at me. It's interesting. And I wonder if any WNBA players nowadays would attribute anything about their ball to perhaps helping with that. I mean, it, it makes sense. It's, it's kind of a similar thing to how football, like the college football has the half stripes. So you can see how good of a spiral the quarterback's throwing. So similar in that sense. I never really thought of it, but I can see how especially at that time when, when shooting had not, I guess, evolved to the point that it is now, how having that visual aid would, would assist you, and especially somebody who is as reliant on their jump shot as Louis Dampier was. But that is, uh, that is my workhorse. That is my guy. Mr. ABA is what I'm going <laughs> to say. I always, thought it was, I always thought it was the doctor, but... When you lead the entire league for its history in games, minutes, assists, points, three-pointers attempted, and three-pointers made, I don't know how you can say anybody is Mr. ABA except for little Louis Dampier. That's my guy. Put Louis Dampier in the Basketball Hall of Fame. If he's Mr. ABA, the Basketball Hall of Fame should take him. He is. He is as of 2015, I believe, correct? Oh, is he? Okay, good. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that about the Basketball Hall of Fame. Just like, were you pretty memorable in basketball? Yeah, all right, come in. Well, and, they, and they'll induct people like multiple times. Like Bill Russell's in twice. He's in as a player and then as a coach. I, I love it. They should induct him one more time just for sure. Yeah, he should, I agree. He should have a posthumous induction. <laughs> Bill should get one more. Give one more for Louis too. I mean, why not? Just throw him in. That that Spurs career was like noteworthy, kind of. I'm sure we'll talk about whether or not Louis getting into any halls, but not before I keep us actually in the state of Kentucky. That segment was so finger licking good, Diaz, as you said, that I want to go ahead and I want to take us back in time as a little prelude to another Kentucky Colonel, uh, Colonel Sanders, Bruce, Colonel Sanders, Bruce. In the 1860s, he had just gotten a degree from Transylvania University. He gets this job in the government, and then Civil War breaks out. And his brother-in-law and his boss go to the Confederacy. Sanders Bruce is a pretty opportunistic guy. This actually opens up a couple jobs in the Union government. So he's like, yeah, I'll stay in the Union, and I'll get promoted a couple times. And so he becomes Colonel Sanders Bruce. Gets injured in the war, but makes it through. Now he's got a nice, sweet Union pension. So he goes to New York. And he starts working with New Yorkers about the one thing that Sanders Bruce knows about, and that's horse racing. More specifically, horse breeding for thoroughbred horses. He founds a magazine called Turf Field and Farm, and then shortly after (laughs) he publishes his magnum opus, The American Stud Book. Since then, it's been purchased by the Jockey Club in 1896, but it is basically a perfect genealogical history of all North American thoroughbred horses. That's American, Canadian, and Puerto Rican literally has every single horse in there. You might have thought with Kentucky, I was going to be talking about some Louisville legend or well-known wildcat, but to that I say, nay. Instead, I want to go, 1983, there is a Mustang, Stormbird, who has just knocked up 
Terlingua. Terlingua is a daughter of Secretariat. And Terlingua is going to shortly thereafter, on February 27th, 1983, give birth to my guy this week, Stormcat. <laughs> that's, a great, that's a great name for a horse. It's an excellent name for a horse. And it's a name that's given to him by his owner, William T. Young. William T. Young has some weird parallels with Colonel Sanders Bruce. William T. Young is also from Lexington, Kentucky. He also goes and fights in a war, World War II, and then with a bunch of his war pension money, decides to get into a couple interests. And one of them is a farm. He opens a small farm initially. But what he's doing to make his real money is he's going to go ahead and invent William T. Young Foods and their biggest product, Big Top Brand Peanut Butter. We know it better by a different name because it's later bought out by Procter & Gamble, and they change it to Jif. So William T. Young invents Jif Peanut Butter, gets all of this money from the Procter & Gamble buyout. Amongst this, he also is able to become chairman of the board of Transylvania University, the alma mater of Colonel Sanders Bruce. And all of this lets him become a big mover and shaker in the world of horse breeding. Still getting his legs underneath him when, in 1983, he gets Stormcat. Stormcat is going to be the single most important horse that William T. Young ever has. Stormcat is foaled in Dairy Meeting Farm, Pennsylvania. The way horse racing works is you're really only going to have two years of a career. You're going to be foaled for a full year, raised up to a point where you either stick with your group or you get sold off as like a prospective, hey, here's a horse you might want to raise as a racehorse. Your second year, when you're one year old, is your training year. And then year two is JV, year three is varsity. That's essentially the career of a thoroughbred racehorse. Initially, after the one year of foaling, William T. Young thinks he wants to sell him. He takes him to this big auction house in Kentucky called Kenlin Sales. And right before that, they test him. And he tests positive for a very rare horse-only RNA virus called equine viral arteritis. He lived a full life after this. He, for whatever reason, does not have this disease, but does test positive. Like William T. Young swears to the guys, hey, he doesn't have it, but he can't be entered in those auctions. They say, eh, maybe you want to come back in the fall, but this has been enough of a pain to ask William T. Young's like, fuck it, I'm just keeping the horse, and we'll just raise it. So he gets this English trainer to come in. They train him for a year, and now we're going to head into year two, his JV year. He's going to be a big horse at this point. He's about 16 hands tall which translates to just about five feet. They still measure in hands, which is a biblical unit of measurement. It's horse racing, and the thoroughbred community is kind of dumb. <laughs> and he's big horse from the Secretariat line. And Secretariat's only a little bit bigger than 16 hands himself. He's got these well-built hips, slightly offset knees. It's, it's a decent prospect package. People are optimistic heading into his first year. And so they take him out to his debut. This is at this point. 1985, August 11th, he goes to the New York Saratoga racetrack. He finishes in second. It was a pretty solid debut. And in his next four races, he's going to win three of those and finish in second in the other one. So he's now in his first five races. Finished second twice, first three times. People are getting excited about this. This all leads up to the biggest race for him in his year two year. is going to be the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. It is the JV championship. It's the biggest purse that any of the year two races have. It's a million dollars back then. It's $2 million now. And he is the favorite and he's leading by three lengths going in stretch, but he just fades. Just can't keep up. And Tasso edges him out. That's lasso with a T Tasso. He gets the win by just a nose 
William T. Young is disappointed because, once again, William T. Young wanted to sell this horse. And he wanted him to be a champion after this, going into his year three season, so that he could sell him. Instead, he's got a horse that again finished second and now has to have off-season surgery for bone chips. He gets that, but even after the surgery, suffers a tendon injury in training. He is able to make it back for a little bit of his year three season. In October 1986, he wins in one of his two appearances, places fourth in the other, continues to train after four, but actually this ends up being a kind of cut tragically short racing career for Stormcat. But Stormcat, as we said, you know, we've, we've brought up this category of workhorses. Stormcat's actually about to enter the career in which he is a workhorse. Because once a horse is done racing, it's time for that horse to be put out to stud. Oh no, this is just going to be this horse having lots and lots of sex, isn't it? Good, good, good for this horse. Good <laughs> it's, for this horse. It's funny you should mention that because I do want to clarify before we start that in order for something to be classified as an American thoroughbred, it does have to be conceived through what they refer to as live cover. That is to say, yes, every single time that he foals an animal, and we're about to talk about it, like every single time that he's a sire, this horse is getting down. Nothing and artificial what? about this, baby. No, 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 uh, no, no random guys in their 20s who we may or may not know who use a giant glove to jerk off the horses. I was going to get into live cover later, but I mean, if, if we're here, let's just dive into it and get this out of the way. So thoroughbreds can, like we said, only come from procreative sex. That is the only way it's allowed to be considered a thoroughbred and entered into the American stud book. They always try to get them going in February or as close to February as possible. The reason for this is a horse's gestational period is 11 months, and that means it's going to be born really early in the year. So by the time they're doing sales and later on racing, all of that racing season is going to be as good of shape as it could be in that age group. It's as old in that age group as it's going to be allowed to be. Like a U11 basketball team, and you want to make sure the kid was born January 1st. Exactly, and exactly. And in order to do this, they'll often install fake lights in the barns to make them think that it's like a warmer part of the year <laughs> because they're more likely to get into heat then. <laughs> The way that they determine whether or not the mare is ready to receive the sire is they do basically have fluffers for them. They have stallion fluffers who come in, and if the mare is like, okay, I'm kind of okay with this horse coming around, they actually pull that horse away, and that's when they let the sire, who they have paid an exorbitant amount of money for the seed of, to do his thing. I do want to let you guys know, just so you don't worry. That other horse is normally like a less expensive stud and does normally also get to finish with other horses that are being used for breeding. So he's not getting just totally left out here to dry. That, that poor beta horse getting just uh, so sad. Now, almost every like thoroughbred horse that is worth a damn is going to make more money from its stud career than it is from its racing career. Like the racing career is where all the fancy stats come from. That's where the glory comes from. But the money comes from this side of the business. Some of the families that are tracked in these American stud books go back to like 1655. The oldest one that I could find in family number six, which is what one of these is called, is Old Bald Peg. She was a mayor <laughs> in 1655 as the like progenitor of the longest running stream. You know, this is all tracked, but it's not really a science until the late 1800s. There's two guys that are involved. One of them is an Australian, Bruce Lowe. He's actually the one who's responsible for those families getting numbered, the way that one number six is referred to. He also created what is called the dosage index, which is a pseudo-mathematical way that they try to guess 
what a horse's overall athletic build is going to be like. There is a spectrum of five terms that go from left to right, brilliant, intermediate, classic, solid, and professional. On the left side, you've got fast, and on the right side, you've got endurance. There's more to it, but this is like a basic breakdown. They've tracked forever how they've ranked the different horses based on their stats. They've given the horses little numbers in these stat boxes. And so when they're looking to make a match, they use these numbers to try and predict basically a distribution chart of what they expect the possible offspring to be like in terms of athletic build. So this is when it becomes like a scientific thing. The other guy that's really important to this, we talked about Colonel Sanders earlier, and I want to bring in another unexpected celebrity guest, John Madden. John Madden is here. This is John Edward Madden, who is, again, a completely different person, just as Colonel Sanders is completely different How dare you? How dare you do that to me? But in the early 20th century, John Edward Madden basically comes up with the number one theory that will use this mathematical system set up by Bruce Lau to govern all horse breeding going forward. Breed the best to the best and hope for the best. Sounds very self-explanatory, but basically take really good racehorses and you expect at the end of the day, that's the most reliable way to get other good racehorses. I just need to go back because like, I now have this image in my head of like John Madden with his telestrator breaking down how to get good horses. Hey, what you want right here? So you got you got a got a big horse over here. Look, look at it, bull. And then uh, you get on in there, and uh, you know about eleven months later is what they tell me. Uh, you know, hey, boom, it's a little baby. It's look at it right there. It's got little little baby horse legs, and you know that's how that's how you run. That's how you build a, a horse that runs. There's an alternate universe where the best-selling sports video game in the world is about horse breeding, and I, for one, apologize to our listeners that I've made you aware of this universe and that we do not also live in it. But back to Stormcat. Uh, Now, the problem is, Stormcat's got a good pedigree. His grandsire, they try to refer to it by the relationship of the older relative to the younger relative largely, so the grandsire of Stormcat is Secretary. At the end of the day, he's got some name recognition, but he did not have a great career. What's going to happen is he's put out to stud initially at a fee of about 30000 for mating. They get almost no takers to the point where they actually drop his price down to 20000 the next year. And then, since they're still not getting a lot of offers, they offer to go into full sharing agreements where basically we're going to sell stock ahead of time in the foals that might result from these just to try and get some better prospects. Because again, even if you believe in Stormcat's pedigree, one thing, that people will say, I'll I'll let you know this, Diaz, about horse racing. You might appreciate this. The one other theory that kind of goes with the best with the best theory is the race course test, which is to say, look, the other thing that we need to know beyond stats is how does this horse do on the racetrack? Does this horse have a dog in him? The race course test is, look, you can only do so well number-wise. You can only know so much for numbers. you got to see a horse actually race to know whether or not it's going to be able to be a good stud. Uh, don't put this in the podcast, but all I'm thinking is, I don't care how big that <laughs> how can you run? <laughs> <laughs> so with the race course test, again, if you watch Stormcat, people can look at his stats and say, this is an unimpressive career. But you watch Stormcat, uh, in those first five races, three first place finishes, two second place finishes, there was something there. He had the bone chips, but bone chips aren't genetic. <clears throat> That first flock comes out in 1991. This is the first time that like any of his progeny are starting to kind of hit the market, hit the racetracks. It's 39 foals. They average about $16,850 at auction. That's fine. 
people are are typically not going to recoup their investment though if you're talking about a twenty thousand dollar fee two of them do become winners of grades one stakes at one point so two of them even here in the very first crop are winners but all in all an unimpressive one so you got to consider though if we're talking about the best with the best strategy this first crop was the one where it was really only people that were kind of able to afford that 30,000 stud fee. The next time you get a few people with maybe slightly more impressive pedigrees that were entering into those full share agreements. And so 1992, actually a lot more effective in 1992, those juvenile performers. So the juveniles, second year horses, he is the leading sire in terms of the earnings by his juvenile foals for the first time in this 1992 year. So all of the winnings by his progeny combined, he's the number two sire. This is a title that he is going to earn a couple more times before we're done. 1994, we fast forward a little bit. We've got the first kind of very exciting kid. This is going to be Tabasco Cat. Tabasco Cat is a very excitable horse and accidentally kicks a kid's skull in at one point. But more importantly, this kid does survive. And Tabasco Cat goes on to finish two of the three gems in the Triple Crown. Unfortunately, the worst performance by Tabasco Cat is in the Kentucky Derby. Kills it in the Preakness and Belmont Stakes, but at that point, you haven't been able to get the crown. What you have done, though, is you have won the first two Triple Crown races for children of Stormcat, who is just continuing to become more prolific of a breeder at this point. This 1994 year, this is going to be the first year that William T. Young wins the Eclipse Award for Outstanding Breeder, primarily on the performance of Tabasco Cat along with the rest of that juvenile class that year. So the next year, they're going to increase the fee, which had gone up to 50000 by this point. They're going all the way up to $100,000 for anyone to mate with Stormcat, which still, comparatively to what people are getting for the yearlings, is a bargain because they're getting on average $50,000 that is considered successful for horse breeders. On this same one, he's got champions in both American dirt tracks and European turf tracks. There is no limit to what the sperm of this horse can conquer once it has had some time to mature as a proper racehorse. It is undefeatable horse sperm. Listen, you know, it's there's one race around the track, and we get as many of those races as we want. But this horse's sperm is elite. The fastest swimmer is getting to the egg every time. And that fastest swimmer is going to manifest into a fast runner. It does. They just keep manifesting. In 1998, this is now going to be his fourth year as the leading juvenile sire for year two competitors in terms of winnings. This crop of foals is the very first one to average for him a million dollars at auction. The foals, like this is not even the ones at this point that are racing. We're talking about the juveniles as his racing winnings. That same year, Ones that are just prospects are averaging a million dollars each. This is going to include eventual European champion, Black Minelouche. What a name. There's some great ones, including a son that the next year is going to have a phenomenal second year career in Europe. Giant's Causeway, named for the geological formation in Ireland. Is it in Northern Ireland? I don't know for certain. I know that it's on the island of Ireland, and I'm going to refer to all of that as Ireland for now because Northern Ireland is is bullshit, man. Like, let's get real here. My Protestant grandmother is is she's spinning in her grave, but she's cremated, so it's a little tornado of ashes <laughs> in whatever thing that they put those ashes in when they buried her. But she is unhappy that I'm saying this. But sorry, that's my hot take on Northern Ireland. A not so hot take is that our boy was crushing at this point. This is the year 1999 that his stud fee raises to $200,000. And guess what? 
the next year, it just keeps raising. He's going to hit 300,000 by 2000, 2001. And then a North American record from 2002 to 2007, it costs $500,000 to have this horse mate with your horse. Now, sadly, during this period from 2002 to 2007, while he is at the peak of his earning potentials, William Young does pass away. He passed away at a perfectly reasonable age, but Stormcat is going to keep earning. In 2004, he is the highest juvenile sire for a record seventh time the year that William T. Young passes. In 2005, he has his single highest ever auction for one of his colts, Jaleel. Just Jaleel. J-A-L-I-L. Jaleel sells for $9.7 million that year at those same Keeneland auction houses. It is the third highest ever, and he, the same year, had the highest average of 28 foals averaging amongst them, each $1,763,750. That same year, he had 180 stakes winners, and $128 million in winnings was earned by them. This is an unbelievable just crop of, of seeds that were planted by this horse in such fertile grounds and have sprung forth from the loins of some phenomenal mares. You know, again, at this point, only the best are getting bred with Stormcat because he is considered at this point to be, in terms of sires, one of the best. And you got to keep that John Madden strategy going. But all good things must come to an end. In 2008, 30 mares still prey a pretty hefty fee. If they've lowered the price slightly, he's getting up in ears. Uh, so it's only 300000 now to mate with him. Of those 30, only three are knocked up. And so this is the last year that he is offered out to stud. Due to declining fertility rates, he is retired. And he's got a couple more years left. At the time of his retirement, he had 462 yearlings that had been auctioned at any point for a total of $319 million, including 91 different horses that sold for at least a million. That to go with all of those stakes winners, all of those earnings that he had. This just at the time of retirement, what a career as a stud horse. What an absolute career of just going and doing what horses know how to do better than anything else except for maybe run. Even then, we're still not done. Now, he can't make any more thoroughbred horses because we're not going to do live cover. For a little bit, they make some overtures towards quarter horses, which is a different class of race horses where they're okay with artificial insemination. And actually, there are two clones of Stormcat. However, despite being genetic clones of him, an American thoroughbred horse, they themselves are not considered American thoroughbred horses because they are cloned and not naturally conceived via live cover. Uh, what they're going to use them for is to try and breed polo ponies. That's a, just a different breed of, of, of horse just for polo? Yep. Yep, just tiny little strong horses specifically. You know, you don't These want... These rich any- people have too much time on their hands and too much money to burn. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck, man? The good thing about the legacy, though, of a stud horse like Stormcat is your lineage is going to go past you. In 2005, a new wave of entries into the Stormcat family come around because at this point, not all of these horses that are being born are colts, stallions, racehorses. Some of them are mares. The next element that you really examine for a stud horse is the mare lines that they produce. Because these same mares, they're not going to have Stormcat in their genealogy. That's going to make them high price, high demand. Beginning in 2005, he has, for a decade, a top 10 earning every year 
family of just the juveniles that are being sired by the mayors from his line. This includes a three-year peak from 2012 to 2014. That period, unfortunately, just like his top earning peak initially coincided with William T. Young's death, does coincide with another death, and that's the death of our boy Stormcat himself. In 2013, he is euthanized at the ripe old age of 30. That is old for a horse. They typically live from 24 to 28. It is suspected that he probably had cancer. However, to examine him would have been an invasive enough procedure that might have killed him. So it was not worth it. They just put him down in old age. The good news is that even when he was dead, his seed still had shit to prove. During all of his life, there were no Triple Crown winners. Not a single Triple Crown winner during the entire lifetime of Stormcat. However, since then, two different horses have won the Triple Crown. In 2015, you had American Pharaoh, and in 2018, you had Justified. American Pharaoh is the great-grandson of Stormcat. Stormcat is the great-grandsire of American Pharaoh, as well as the great-great-grandsire of Justified. He is the closest horse related to the two Triple Crown winners of any horse in the American stud book. No other horse appears within five generations of both champions. And so not only did he accomplish all that he did in his life, not only did his brood accomplish all that it did in his life, even in death, Stormcat has helped deliver to us the first two Triple Crown winners in in over 30 years, nearly 40 years. Simply put, I think Stormcat is one of the greatest fucking horses ever and a true guy. And that is my presentation for the week. Well, I mean, it's the wordplay you went for, but yes, I think you hit the nail on the head. One of the greatest horses at fucking in the history of both horses and fucking. I just love that for the category of workhorse, you just brought a horse who is most expensive male gigolo in the world. Yeah, no, when you said workhorse, I decided immediately I was doing a horse. It was just a matter of what angle was I approaching the horse from. And it was a horse that fucks, which is a yeah. very good, a very fun angle. It is a horse that is hung like a horse. They, they could make an entire second stud book just on Stormcat's... You are severely underestimating how extensive the American stud book already is. I mean, I'm assuming it's like fucking 30,000 pages or something like that. There's a lot of horses in there. There's a whole lot of inbreeding in there. Not close breeding. Here's the thing about American thoroughbred horse breeding. There are two different terms for inbreeding. There's inbreeding that's like kind of acceptable because it's, <laughs> it's generations where you're like, okay, we've got a pretty good basis of what the dosage index, those five numbers on the spectrum. We have a good idea of what that is. Close breeding is the inbreeding that's too close. So they have a different category of inbreeding that's like the inbreeding we actually need to worry about. The more we talk about horse fucking, the more it's just like an onion. There's, there's just more and more layers here than I ever cared to wonder or know. But <laughs> that's the beauty of this podcast, folks. You never know where we're going to take you. And this time, we are taking you to Stormcat's penis and its prolific accomplishments. <laughs> You're going to be in bar trivia someday and need to know the gestational period for a horse pregnancy, and you're going to be so glad that I brought this up. You know what? No, I, I do true. appreciate it. I will never forget 11 months again. Incredible. But it's not going to take us, I think, 11 months to come to a conclusion here. It may take us some time, because this is a strong trifecta of guys brought to the table. 
I, I'm not afraid to say that I do love Stormcat very much. And I am, as always, dedicated to following the letter, if not the spirit, of the category as much as possible. No, I, I appreciate the, the angle, and I, I wouldn't expect any less of you, obviously. I mean, here's where I'm going to speak very selfishly. I think I've came with some fire the first couple of weeks, and I'm just going to say, how often do we discuss somebody on this podcast that is the greatest of something that we've never discussed before and that we haven't even thought of before and that we didn't even know his name before. Like Louis Dampier is the greatest player in ABA history. And we all know what the ABA is and we all know the impact of the ABA, but we never knew who Louis Dampier was until he was brought to the table today. This is fair. This is, I think, the Babe Diedrich and Zaharias argument that I made. Like, we're talking about someone who, yes, should be well-known because their accomplishments are vast and deserving of the recognition that they've gotten in some circles. I mean, we are, to be fair with Lou Dampier, we are talking about a Hall of Famer. Um, But with that, instead, of course, Babe Diedrich and Zaharias, several Halls of Fame. So I'm not throwing stones in glass houses here. I completely understand your point. Like, there, there is an extent to which we try to use this to right wrong. And I, I understand you coming with that angle. Uh, I'd love to hear Xavier if you have any particular angles as we ponder. Before Xavier goes, before Xavier goes, I just want to establish another term in the glossary of guy. Louis Dampier does not eclipse the Zaharius horizon, and therefore the Zaharius horizon. The Zaharius horizon is the point which no guy may eclipse. He approaches it, but the asymptote does not come into contact. All right, yeah, he does. I will certainly agree. I don't think his Hall of Fame candidacy is disqualifying. He is certainly not one of the people where we've talked about him. Like, no, he he can't go in. He's too good. I just wanted to establish that, but yeah. please, Xavier. It's a horse that fucks, man. <laughs> <laughs> like, does Louis Dampier have four hundred kids? He has like six. That's four hundred and sixty-two male yearlings that were sold. He has. Over a thousand children. Yeah, that that that's a lot. That's a lot, Diaz. I I, I got to go with the horse that fucks. I have now been put into indecisiveness as this comes around because I I would have said George Gervin before Louis Dampier even as as greatest ABA player after Dr. J. As far as the educational value of this podcast. I certainly do not mean to diminish Stormcat in any way, shape, or form. I mean, just because of the way that these things work, the legacy of Stormcat will be seen and felt on American racetracks for the rest of time, truly. I think Stormcat has that legacy, which will live on. And yes, Louis is in the Basketball Hall of Fame, but again, they let anybody in that hall. We don't let anybody in this hall. And, you know, we do, we do already, have, we have good representation in the non-human category of the hall already with our, human our representation. We have great representation in basketball. We do. We do. But I'm just saying, I'm just saying, we have animals that have fucked in already. This isn't a novelty. Well, uh, Mickey Mouse was never put out to stud and Stormcat, to his Fair. credit, got a long and fruitful life, we'll say. Man, he was really going up until, like, 25. Horses are dying at that age. Like, that's... A horse can die of old age and natural causes at 24. He was still out to stud at 25. Goodness gracious. 
May we all love our lives' pursuits as much as Stormcat loved being a father. <laughs> you didn't have to take care of him. That is true. Like, could you, like, imagine, like, sitting down and having a conversation with Stormcat and just being like, I know, like, you know you've been fucking a lot. <laughs> did you know, these, like, your great-grandson won the Triple Crown? Like, <laughs> all your fucking kids are such... Three years later, your great-great-grandson won the Triple Crown. Whatever you are doing to these mares, keep doing it. I would love <clears throat> to grow out with Stormcat just once. Like, bump into him at a bar and be like, Hey, aren't you that horse that, like, fucked all those mares? And he'd be like... That'd be me. And then we would just talk about his life. I would I I wish I could have this conversation with Stormcat. I'm listen, I'm okay with Stormcat going in. Here's my thought. I'm gonna be very pragmatic about this. I like Louis Dampier's story. And I think Louis Dampier's story needs to be included. I'm more certain that someone down the road is gonna say, you know what, we do need to real quick include that horse that fucks. Versus someone down the road thinks back to Louis Lampier. I don't know if if Louis Dampier gets another shot. I'm sure that Stormcat does. You know what? Louis Dampier has taken a lot of shots. He might not have done it with the most efficiency ever. But I think he and you took enough this time to eventually win me over for my beloved Stormcat. I, I think I am side <clears throat> with Louis Dampier. Beautiful. I dislike that rationale completely. But I will definitely bring up the horse that fucks in, in relitigation, so. You know, people do strategic voting. I'm sure some of the people that didn't vote for Ken Griffey Jr. were like, Ken Griffey Jr. is going to get in. I need to give this vote to somebody else. Well, I, I appreciate your thoughtfulness, James, as does Louis Dampier, because it is this committee's duty, it is our honor, it is our great privilege to induct the forefather of the three-point line the man who is the reason why boomers across the country loathe Steph Curry and the way that they play the game today. But nonetheless, a pioneer, a colonel, and a guy, Louis Dampier, welcome into the Hall of Guy. And to Stormcat, you just keep doing what I know that you must be doing in horsey heaven right now. We'll get back in touch with you real soon. Don't fall off a cloud or anything. But Louis Dampier, congratulations. What was the name of uh, Eight Bells, right? That was that was the mayor that ran and like did really well in the Kentucky Derby, and mm-hmm. then, but then had to be put down. Eight Bells and Stormcat are just fucking up a storm in heaven right now. Good for All them. right, I want to be clear. I am the one that brought the topic of horse breeding. Diaz is the one who crossed the line into fan fiction. Let the record show. <laughs> That when we got into fictional depictions of which horses we ship in our head cannons, that was Justin Diaz's decision. Listen, I got a Bojack Horseman tattoo. I've been seeing horses fuck for years. So it's, you know, it's, it's not some illusory concept to me. But, yes, I, uh, the horses that fuck fanfiction will be releasing, uh, I believe, three weeks uh, from, from this, this, this podcast episode release. So stay tuned. <laughs> Well, I would just like to say one last time on the final way out, Xavier, I do genuinely wish you the best of luck against Don Javis. And I look forward to setting up our second feeder league. We're going to set up a, a relegation system. I have enough people that are interested in another one that it's going to start being anyone that doesn't make the playoffs 
is, is in danger of getting knocked down. And, and we're going to set that up because there's no way we can dilute the talent pool for fantasy WNBA outside of six teams at this point. Ionescu was fantastic today again with 52 fantasy points after scoring 31 and she was too good. Liberty actually won by 30 today. So she sat out almost the entire fourth quarter. You got this. You got this. The Tulsa Shockers are behind you. I Philadelphia Liberty all the way. We lend you our power. Someone from this podcast has to win. Well, there's only one option now, so <laughs> get get to work, Xavier. Uh, in Wait. fact, you know what? I think we need to cut it short now so that you can go do some research about what streaming you're going to do for the next week. Anything else from you guys? Brian Flores was right. Brian Flores was right. Steven Ross is a dick. And I've been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as Wayne Gretzky once said, you miss 100% of the guys you don't talk about. <laughs> <laughs>